Welcome, B-Movie fans, to another B-Movie interview. I'm Paul. And I'm Corey. And joining us today are two comic creators, Jason Lennox of Lord of the Cosmos and longtime friend of the show and creator of Lovecraft P.I., David Kahn. Today, we're going to be discussing not only their respective comics, but comics in general. Jason, welcome to the show. And Dave, welcome back to the show. Good to be back. Good to be on for the first time. I feel like we're in a big, cuddly virtual room together. In a way we are, I guess. The internet's one giant hug box, I guess. <laughs> one big cuddle fest. <laughs> so, uh, we'll start, Jason. What first inspired you to uh, get into the comic creation business? The first comic book that I remember I actually got and read was Grew the Wanderer number 2 from the epic imprint from Marvel Comics. And that was from Sergio Argonas, the guy that did all the little comics in the margins of Mad Magazine. And uh, I've always liked comics. And in 2011, I started making uh, my own comics and self-publishing them. And uh, I've made one, two, three, four, five, six of them since 2011. Nice. Mm-hmm. Definitely a hard worker. Yeah, no. And, uh, you know, huge respect to anyone that's making comics because it, it's one of the most complicated, uh, work-intensive, and sometimes thankless endeavors that we can embark on. And you make them because you really just like the act of making them. And it's it's just saying, I love comics. You take the time to make your own. So, yeah, I've liked comics pretty much as long as I can remember. It's an endeavor of love. Yes. Well, hey, I'm just going to jump in here real quick on that. It's, I find it funny, too, because of the shows that I appear at recently and then just outwardly talking to people about, you know, whoever it may be, you know, outside of shows itself. Where they ask, oh, hey, what do you do? And they're like, oh, you know, I publish and uh, write comic books. And they just kind of look at you like, it's not a book. <laughs> you know, I, I don't, I, it takes a minute because you look at them going, uh, are they thinking like the funny pages? Are they thinking like just dime store comics? It's like, but like Jay's saying, it's, it takes a lot of money, a lot of effort, a lot of coordination between the artists and everything else to get this, you know, to get a vision out there. To me, it's just like making a movie. You know, it's, a, it's a definitely a collaborative effort, at least in my experience. Yeah, and, and one of the things, too, unless something goes spectacularly right for you, you know, oftentimes there's not a whole lot of uh, profit in making comics. No, uh, no. So, again, when I say if you catch people making their own comics because they just really dig an idea that they had, for the most part, they're probably not doing it with the hope of getting rich. Well, they may hope, but more than likely that won't occur. So again, they're they're doing it because they really really dig comic books. And then one of the one of the hardest aspects of publishing your own comics and getting it out there is just that advertising. It's not like mm. it's not like that movie where you can make a trailer and throw that out there. It's how do you get your name out there for comics? You have to go mm. kind of go directly to uh, people in a lot of ways, go to conventions and things. I'll give you my pat answer to that because I've answered that question many times. It's like running for some kind of small political office like Prothonotary. 
that you're literally going around talking to every uh, Jane and Joe and shaking their hands and saying, hi, I'm Jason, and this is my comic book, Lords of the Cosmos, and I sure wish you would give me some money and take my book and, and give it a shot. And you're doing that literally online and in person thousands of times. Uh, again, just saying, I'm running for Prothonotary in your township. Please, please cast your vote for me. It is literally just grinding it because unless a major publisher is going to put marketing weight to do that for you, no one's really doing anything for you to do that. So, again, you have to hustle your ass, which, again, if you like what you made and you're proud of it, you'd never have a problem doing it. But it's literally just the act of talking hundreds or thousands of times about the same thing. Dave, I'll let you give your thought on it. I don't want to speak for you. No, I mean, I agree with you. And especially now with the whole social media age, very different than it used to be, you know, early on. So that's kind of a new beast to basically go across and see what's going to work and what's not. And I find myself putting some money into promotional and stuff like that online. Doesn't seem to make a difference. (laughs) So, you know, unless you really put a lot of money into it, I think that's where you will eventually get there. But Jay's right. I mean, you really have to, whether it's online or not, but for me, it's, it's at the shows. It's like when I go to shows, that's where you do the eyeball to eyeball, meet and greet, really kind of peddle your, your wares and get it out there. And I, that's my favorite part of it. I mean, you know, other than writing it and putting it all together, it's just going out there and meet the fans and new people that, you know, want to read the book. And Dave, I have to say, I, I do still use your Lovecraft PI bookmarker that's got the case oh. of the reanimator <laughs> on it. Yeah. And, uh, and your Lovecraft PI shot glasses are the most used ones at my house. I'll say one thing. I mean, I mentioned Gru. I was a kid. It was pretty much there was Marvel and DC. And then Dark Horse was kind of like the on the fringe independent comic that was in black and white or comics uh, that were out there. And Marvel books when I was a kid were 75 cents and pretty much a slate of their books for every one of their titles might have been like 14 like, here is our one X-Men book and our one Spider-Man book. Didn't really read DC at the time, so I can't really speak to it. But it was very limited as to what you could get. And, you know, again, it was your Avengers, Spider-Man, X-Men, Hulk, etc. Um, and you could have probably bought them all in a month for $16, which whatever that is in adjusted money, maybe 30 bucks, 40 bucks tops. And uh, that was it. What's changed now, two things. One is the technology to print that uh, guys like Dave and I really is, is very small operations can get access to high tech professional printing to put out books that just touching them and feeling them are as nice as any book that you can buy anywhere from any publisher, which, you know, we've given technology to the masses and we've uh, made money more democratic. So if someone has an idea, anyone can pitch their idea to the world to say, I need X amount of dollars to make my book. So now good, bad, or indifferent, everyone has that ability, which has opened up a whole Pandora's box of really talented independent people to people that are just basically ripping off the public, taking money. So there's a complete spectrum of, of great to bad independent producers of books. Uh, you know, again, there's now no barriers for anyone to collect money and to do professional printing. So again, there is a whole network now of grassroots bookmaking. And again, it's gone from really cool stuff to really bad stuff. Well, the other thing I was going to put in there, too, is that the one thing you didn't mention was PDFs. I mean, Mm -hmm. we sell all our stuff as PDFs online through our site personally. That's a whole other market. It saves you on shipping. It definitely do some sales, not a lot, but I do some sales at the moment overseas. And that's 
saves me 20, you know, or not me, but the, the person who's purchasing $22 to send something, you know, send a book over. So, I mean, that's huge for us too, which, you know, never happened before. It's amazing how the internet kind of changed everything. So many businesses that were either local or basically monopolized by a few uh, companies have kind of changed completely. Yeah, exactly. And, and you just sell that, you sell that for a nominal fee, you know, online as a digital piece. They've got it forever, you know, and it's high resolution. And for us, it saves us a little bit on the printing. And Jay's right. I mean, the printing now is amazing. And, and the fact that we don't have to do it as offset anymore. I mean, you just send them a PDF file. It's like, you know, you get a, an example back of, you know, what they're going to do. And you're like, okay, yeah, it looks great. Well, yeah, in the day, in the day's point, to, to print a comic, you know, in the 70s, a big publisher was printing a ton of books and more than likely doing it with offset printing, which, again, if you're printing a ton of books is economic, but just, again, for, I want to make, uh, you know, 500 books. Uh, oh, heck, I, I just did 50 the other day. I mean, doing offset printing, you could never do 50. <laughs> you no, know, you always I mean, have to do yeah. bulk. You know? Well, and the, and the independent books of that era were literally guys stapling Xeroxes. Right, right. So, I mean, the drop-off from, like, the Marvel books to, to you know, if Dave was making books in 1982 would have been ridiculously steep and poor quality. Speaking of comics, uh, could you guys give us a little bit of a description of your respective comic series? Um, why don't we start with uh, Dave? Could you tell us a little bit about Lovecraft P.I.? Yeah, sure. Lovecraft P.I. is a, a pulp noir it has a supernatural overtones, and, and our, our character, Ward Lovecraft, is, you know, the polar opposite of what the author H.P. was. I mean, this uh, Ward has uh, gone to war. He's seen things. He was recruited by the Miskatonic Supernatural Detective Agency early on. So at the moment, hunts down supernatural and paranormal activity, different case files that he's called upon. In A Shot in the Dark, he is called to Innsmouth to solve a murder and also to locate one of the missing Necronomicons. What we wanted to do is mix a lot of the old school noir, Humphrey Bogart, Dashiell Hammett, in with Lovecraft himself and his monsters and cosmic horror and that aspect of it. And to me, it really fits just wonderfully. I and mean, be able to build the environment and the universe of Lovecraft's work is awesome to begin with. But then throwing in this kind of, you know, private dick aspect, I think really grounds it in a lot of ways. Definitely. I've read the first two volumes. I really like them a lot. It combines a lot of things I really enjoy. The old noir film, horror, and science fiction. So you really can't go wrong with that. No, not at all. Not at all. And I mean, for us, it was it was one of those things where we wanted to kind of combine the whole old school, you know, sci-fi horror stuff with Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jimmy Cagney movies and that type of feel, you know. So you've got monsters going up against FBI guy type characters. <laughs> you know, it's like, why not? So it seems like a nice fit. And uh, Jason, could you tell us a little bit about Lord of the Cosmos? So Lords of the Cosmos is basically a genre experiment in what my writers and I have called sci-fi barbarians, which we looked at things like Masters of the Universe, the old classic Flash Gordons, Thunder the Barbarian, classic Saturday morning uh, cartoon show from uh, the 80s. that uh, Love Thunder. A lot. Yes. And... We looked at those and said, what is that as a genre? It's science fiction barbarians. So we wanted to do a comic in that genre. And uh, we came up with Lords of the Cosmos. Basically, it's about a fantastic uh, world uh, that has magic and technology. And it has a government with leadership, economy, and an ecosystem that is beset on one side by a group of superpowered villains that have been clashing with a group of superpowered heroes for an extended period of time. 
and the series starts as they're starting a new conflict across the planet uh, after the heroes have gone into hiding after their last conflict. And the uh, the book has a central story that I draw in uh, my two writers, Dennis Fallon and uh, Jason Palmatier, who created Lords of the Cosmos with me, a uh, story that. And then each issue features backup stories by other writers and artists that, that uh, spotlight in on the different characters and their backgrounds, origins, and their adventures to kind of flesh out an entire world from a lot of different points of view. So it's a book that if I saw it, I'd, I'd want to read it. And uh, again, it just exists in that genre world of superpowered heroes uh, that uh, carry sword. There are robots and magic and technology and tanks and guns and wizards and talking animals in a world where there's kind of no rules except that it's ruled by science fiction barbarians. So that's uh, Lords of the Cosmos in a nutshell. It's funny you say that the influences were like different cartoons, because while reading it, I was actually kept thinking a lot of the characters remind me of old figurines I used to play with, like action figures and all that. And just the way the story's set up, it's like a more sophisticated version of like playing with different figurines and like setting up how they're going to attack the other one. Ends of like He-Man mixed with ancient Greek military leaders and stuff like that. Masters of the Universe has a very good uh, set group of archetype characters. And, uh, you know, one of the things we did is, is look at that as, as a basic template for the genre. In He-Man, Skeletor was the main villain, and then uh, Evil Lynn was kind of his number two, and there was always kind of an implied love interest. So so in our book, we have Umex is the, the main villain, uh, and the leader of the Disciples of Umex is semi-military religious uh, death cult. And then Obsidia fills his archetype of second-in-command female-slash-love interest, and then the third-in-command is a robotic unicorn-slash-pegasus that we sort of model after Starscream as like a third main villain, uh, oftentimes as, as he was you know, thrown about when we worked on writing for him, it was in the angry Starscream voice. So we took a lot of feels and cues and pointers from those genres. I mean, another character that we drew a lot from Masters was Triclops, and then we designed uh, Decaptor, who's a guy that doesn't switch his eyes, he switches out his head like a socket. So it's one of those things that there's kind of a nod to that, but obviously it's not the same. But again, if you're reading it and saying, yeah, I, I get the right feel, it's kind of like if you watch you know, the movie you know, Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood, you're kind of reminded of Man With No Name from Fistful of Dollars because it's kind of a nod to it, but it's not the same thing. I definitely got the impression that most of the villains seem to have something to do with death. Like, there's a lot of talk about viruses close to death, and they're kind of invading a land that's closer to the living. I don't know if you, if um, that was something you guys were going with, with when making it, but it seemed like a lot of the um, villains are more closer to death than the heroes, which seem to be more closer to life. When we looked at Masters as kind of a, a touchstone, uh, you know, the classic show that we all know from the 80s was a little silly. In 2002... They did a reboot that kind of amped up the seriousness, but then it was ended prematurely. Uh, but it definitely kind of tuned it up a little bit. So we looked at it as, again, saying there are superpowered lawmen, and then there's a really bad group of terrorists that run, want to run down the world. So what you're pointing out was definitely by design. Uh, the villains are, are definitely intended to be dangerous. A lot of them are very close to death. They're very brutal. There's a lot of co-opting the living, uh, hurting the living to power these guys. One of the characters that you just see who's a villain here and there is like a gigantic fishbowl that harvests the dead, and then he has robotic arms that move their bodies into this huge 
fish tank body uh, with spider legs that like the bodies are dissolved to fuel him. A lot of, you know, tortured uh, organic characters with machine parts uh, fill out a lot of the villains. So um, they're very sickly and they prey on living. They are subsisting uh, like viruses taking over a lot of living people. And they're, and they're very unpleasant. They're very dangerous. And the idea is if you run into these guys, that they may try to eat you or co-opt your body. Uh, and they're very destructive and dangerous. And they were so awful to fight with that the good guys have gone into hiding and have, have basically left the world. And uh, as issue one opens up, the, the villains are now attacking the civilians of the world to to bait these guys back out in the open to fight them again because they've left. Definitely cool. So it's kind of like the villains have won the battle, but we make sure that, that they stay on top to, by wiping everybody out. Sure. I mean, and, and the idea is if these guys are really that bad, you know, Skeletor is like the top guy that he's so dangerous. He threatens the entire world with a dozen guys. You know, to me, that would, would make him very dangerous and scary. And let's present him, or in our case, we have Umex as such, that he appears to be some kind of rotten flesh, half machine creature that he actually attacks the entire planet and infects the soil uh, and kills everything kills trees, kills animals, kills grass, soils the earth, but also just kills people at will. You know, anyone that gets near him, he'll, he'll attempt to kill. Yeah, that's kind of like what I was getting at with them being closer to death. There's a lot of talk of things corroding or dying when they're nearby, and it's, it's really horrifying just being around these um, villains is getting closer to death. Not, not even, like, confronting them directly. Their presence is, brings you closer to death. It rots away at you. You're right on the money with that description because, you know, Umag on issue two, he was like, good, we've cleared out an area, let's destroy it. And his three tentacles go right into the, the soil of the planet, and literally it just turns everything black and everything dies there's a couple time lapse panels where it just shows you know animals that are walking on the ground dying you know the the the, the grass turns black the trees shrivel up and die his, his goal is to kill people uh, he is a death cult leader and he makes no bones about that he's here to just wipe everyone out uh, it's a very clear and simple goal and again having a large-scale war with him in the past so bad for the heroes that we get more into that in issue three which we're working on now that they've literally gone to a citadel and like locked themselves in their version of Mount Olympus and said, we don't want to even be in the world anymore. We're done. This is horrible. So we've, we've heard a lot about the characters of Lords of the Cosmos, but mm-hmm. what would you say is the most interesting aspect about creating a comic? Would it be making those characters? Is it creating the storylines? Is it the art style? What would you say? And, and I'm going to tie Dave into this because he's part of what that answer is, is that, with something like Lords of the Cosmos, it's kind of like building a sandbox where different artists and different writers are helping us shine a flashlight and and shedding literal light into what's going on over there. And we gave you a nibble here, and now we're going to give you an entire meal based on that nibble. So there's a lot of the world that we have not explored, but one of the really fun parts is working with other creative people to flesh out things that we just had a stub. So in the creative process of starting it, we had a character called Obsidia that, again, was uh, the the number two villain that's the semi-love interest uh, general uh, to Umex uh, Obsidia. And Dave, as a a friend, came uh, with me to do a short story that my friend Danny Kalakis illustrated called Nights Out. And it was so much fun to, to take literally a stub of this is a character that betrayed some other group that we haven't even introduced 
and she's Umex's love interest. Dave, we have to make this cool. Uh, and Dave and I worked for several months on that, and that was really fun to find what her story was, and I love it. And uh, that was probably one of the most fun things to explore that from a writing aspect, which I never had really done in this way that Dave and I did together. And then to have another artist bring that vision to life and tie it all back into that original stub um, from just a few panels in issue one where she has a little bit of dialogue and a brief introduction. We have a lot of stubs like that. So I'm, I'm looking forward, you know, as time allows to explore more because it, it's fun. And, and I'll let Dave weigh in on his his side of, of doing that with me. The thing for me, it was, you know, when, when Jay first started telling me the whole universe of Lords of the Cosmos kind of terrified me because of the fact that there was so much information, you know, especially coming from Lovecraft and working what I'm doing with that and knowing what the universe, uh, you know, I'm creating and building. It's like, oh man, I met somebody else that's doing the same thing, but just on the completely opposite level of just sci-fi, like, you know, like you, you guys were saying, it's just He-Man on steroids. It took several weeks to a couple months for me to kind of wrap my mind around like what he was talking about <laughs> because a lot of times I was just like, uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think, you know, even the first story that I came up with, which was my interpretation of what he was asking for, just totally missed the mark. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah, I, I remember had, the tone on that was, it was like, you didn't quite get the tone. No, not at all. And, and I was like, I was like, oh, I, I came to him. I was like, oh, I think this is pretty good. Jay, let me know what you think. Just my interpretation of what he came to me with. And he was just like, no. And I was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> Gotta watch more episodes <laughs> of He-Man. What's that? I'm sorry. You got to watch more episodes of He-Man, just marathon the entire series. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, going back and just him and I working it out and just learning more about the universe. And that's it. I mean, it's like once you get involved into Lords of the Cosmos, then you start kind of understanding kind of all the mechanics of it and the layers of all that. And that's what I love about it is the fact that these characters, especially Umix and those guys, are just so dark and fucking evil. I mean, they don't care about anything. And that's why I'm looking forward to the next issues where, you know, we start introducing the good guys. We're like, how's this all going to go down? You know, how's this going to happen with these guys trying to defend themselves? Because Jay and the guys have set up such a, a wonderful layered universe that has brought us all together on this. And there's so many places to go with it already that, I, you know, you're just enticed with it. You know, you just you want to be able to kind of keep creating these little stories and building off of these little moments of characters and groups and all that. And to me, that's that's the best part is beyond the collaborative aspect, but just being able to be integrated into a universe like this and working with a bunch of guys uh, and illustrators and creators that are coming up with something completely new and different. That's a lot of fun. You know. Yeah, and, and I think once Dave got a feel for, for our bizarre tone, and like I think, you know, to his point, he, he, he had a missed mark, and then I think he kind of got it that I think Dave's been initiated into, into the, the tribe uh, of all the guys that have contributed to the work, be they writers or artists, where there's a tone and there's a theme, and I think now Dave gets it, and, you know, Dave's going to help contribute again for issue three for another uh, backup short story. Um, and I think it's going to be great because now he, he's going to go into it having a, a great feel for it. But I think one of the cool things, and again, asking me what is my favorite part, was that once Dave got it, I felt Dave not only understood what we were doing, but I think he definitely added, uh, you know, his uh, unique flavor to it. And then, you know, again, we worked with a, a wonderful a friend of mine who's an artist, uh, Danny, that she really brought some really great art to that story. 
she helped us design some new characters. Uh, and Dennis, one of the, the creators of Lords of the Cosmos, chipped in kind of the character descriptions for the Rainbow Knights, who uh, is where Obsidia used to, uh, her old super team before she went off the rails and, and fell in love with a, a bad man and then decided to kill everyone. And it was really fun to build that corner of the universe out and to say that this is it. So again, like Dave helped us find their voice and find that story and uh, showed us the new mechs used to have two hands and didn't always have three mechanical tentacles. So it was just really exciting, uh, you know, where that went. And we even uh, used it as a great excuse to tie in where the, the two main Lords of the Cosmos first appear just out of the blue. And then the next question is, well, where did they come from? Which maybe another story we'll have to explore in another future issue. So again, that's the exciting part. And some of the characters, we have a lot of stuff built up for already. There's some characters, to be honest, that they're, they're just going to appear in future issues. We don't really have much, and there there's some other cool stuff for people to explore, whether it's you know Dave and I or other writers and artists that, that get you know with us in the future. So that's the exciting part, is that you have this big sandbox, and uh, there's a lot of nooks and crannies that I think we're going to explore, and we're going to have some fun doing it. And, and I get excited seeing the, the story straps and the, and the different art because I don't know everything about Lords of the Cosmos, and I'll be the first to admit it. And I think that's fun that the sandbox we've created uh, that Jason and Dennis and I started is vast. And we are excited to see what other people dig up in it, because that's cool. Because uh, I, I, I love seeing other creative people run with it. Well, and, and, and just to add on that real quick, when you were asking before about the, the exciting thing about it, for me too, you know, because you're sitting there for months and months writing this stuff you know, in your own head and having ideas and going through research. And, and I don't know about Jay, but for myself, for Lovecraft, I compiled gigabytes of research for my illustrator. So when I send that off to them and then, you know, they start sketching and doing stuff. And then once they start turning in the sketches and the inks, to me, that's like Christmas time all over again. It's like, cause you've been working with this product for such a long time. And then when you actually see the illustrator come back with these ideas, and sometimes they're kind of like what you wanted, but the, sometimes they're just like their interpretation. You're like, wow, that's pretty wild. I'm glad you went in that direction. You know, and I remember when I saw the first time I saw the, the stuff that we did for, uh, for Jason, for first year two of the Lords of the Cosmos, I had no idea the style or anything he was going. I mean, I knew the style from the books, but not, you know, the style we were using for this story. And it started coming in. I was like, oh, this is pretty wild. And to me, that just gives it a whole other meaning to obviously the writing that we had done. To me, that's just, a, you know, that, that, that's a lot of fun. I, that, that's one of my favorite things about, you know, putting a comic together. Well, and the artist that did that, the direction I gave her was she -Rock. I was like, we want to see that this is like girls' lines of toys, and I want it to look like we're exploring she -Rock. And she designed a temple for these women to have that's part of the story. And it's this big, gaudy, triangular thing that looks like it walked out of a 1984 Sears toy catalog at the big <laughs> Key Rock Castle. And, like, in that world and in the, in that story, it's a little goofy and it's corny, but it, it just worked. And she really did a great job bringing that kind of, like, kitschy 80s sci-fi look real. Her art was very clean. Um, it was very dynamic anatomy. It was fresh. It was expressive. Some of the characters that, that I put in Lords of the Cosmos, she did her take on that. She made up a lot of characters, unique looks for that. So, again, it was a fresh look that really, you know, added some depth and breadth and, and some fun history to, to Lords of the Cosmos. So, so yeah, that, that, that's the, the real treat, like to Dave's point, is, is exploring 
and finding those unique visions from from really talented people because there's there's so many really awesome talented people it's great to just have their voices mm-hmm. added to, to it yeah definitely you know now that i think about it both lords of the cosmos and lovecraft pi they're kind of the same story told from in opposite ways whereas lovecraft pi is a guy um from kind of a normal world voluntarily going into this sci-fi horror world. Lords of the Cosmos is that sci-fi horror world going into a seemingly somewhat normal-esque world of just um, regular people. So it's kind of like um, two ends and like kind of combining the two. Yeah, more than you know. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, I could see that. I could see where he's coming from with that. I mean, but, you know, both definitely, you know, dwell in the fantastical, and that's that's what I think was a lot of fun, you know, because both, you know, both with Lords of the Cosmos and with Lovecraft, I mean, they're they're kind of fathomless universes. I mean, you could do whatever the hell you want. I mean, what you know, what Jay and I were talking about for the story that we have for issue three, I mean, that just takes it to, I, I you know, when he came to me with the idea, I was just like, oh. Okay, that makes total sense. It's completely outlandish and crazy, but it makes total sense, you know, in, in that world. It's best but kind then of stories. Too, if you take that idea and put it into Lovecraft, it would be the same. It would be just as outlandish and crazy. But you're like, you know what? Uh, yeah, okay, I could kind of buy that, you know. So um, I, I think they are similar in their own little ways and genre lending. So speaking of worlds, you know, in the comic book world, we all know the Giants, Marvel and DC. But with the resurgence of independent comics, and you guys said about earlier how that ability to print in smaller numbers and have that same kind of quality, um, what do you say that independent being able to get there on the uh, on the market has affected the comic book industry as a whole? I'll let Dave answer first, then I'll answer. read very few issues of comic in recent years just because I've been so embroiled with my own stuff, but... I do speak with uh, comic book shop owners and uh, where I where I sell my stuff uh, locally, and a lot of the guys are going into more independent streams, which is which is awesome, you know. And it's a lot of it. At least the complaints that I have heard is the fact that a lot of the bigger guys are just kind of retreading the same old stories, the same old this, the same old that. So they're looking for new material. And to me, that's awesome. For the longest time, it was just, you know, everybody else and then kind of the independents. So if we could kind of see an upturn on, on all that, I'm, I'm all for that, you know. I mean, as far as, like, cons and stuff go, I haven't seen it at all there. I mean, it's all big stuff, you know. And as an indie guy, uh, at least for myself, I get shoehorned in the corner unless I'm doing a genre-type con. Uh, if I'm doing a big show... I'm out with the aluminum siding guy. Yeah. I remember when you came to Pittsburgh and we helped you out at the one the one con that was here. We were sandwiched between a wine table and a fucking Funko Pop table. Like nine eighths of the place was not comics, and then yeah. like you had right. negative comics at the comic convention. I've seen more comics at that show than I have at other cons. I mean, and that's what's kind of sad is. You know, the name doesn't resemble what they're selling anymore. If you look at something exciting like the New York Stock Exchange, it's things like Exxon, you know, 3M, where it's like we sell petroleum, we sell, you know, sand abrasive products, you know, whatever. And if you look at who the big two are, they're with publicly traded companies. So I look at things like Spider-Man now, the way I would look at like a barrel of oil. They are big companies that are sitting and saying, we have to maximize our dollars. That's not exciting. It's about as exciting as trying to understand things like corn futures or the price of aluminum. I get it. 
I have 401k, so I have stocks. So I hope the stocks go up. That's good for me, but they're not necessarily very interesting or entertaining. So the big two many years ago were, were literally little houses of ideas where creative guys made cool stuff. They are now corporate uh, products where, you know, Boba Fett is now a uh, coffee creamer at Target, and that's a real thing. Um, <laughs> and, I, and, and look, I'm not going to say there aren't some wonderful creatives that work for those companies, and I'm not going to say nothing they make is readable because I'm sure that there is some really good stuff that comes out from Marvel and DC. I don't really read Marvel and DC anymore. But again, these are companies that are with Coca-Cola, commercial real estate companies. So if you believe that comic books are art, I believe they are art. I'm not going to go to Exxon to show me Van Gogh painting, which is basically what the big two are. And again, like there's cool people that work for those companies and they have a lot of beloved characters. But I think you have to remember they're beholden to shareholders who want more profit. All that being said, further down the trough, um, smaller publishers and or people like Dave and I that are kind of one man, you know, bands or small clans of people making stuff, right? Because Lords of the Cosmos has, you know, myself and Dennis and Jason as the three co-owners of, of the property as creators. We're not as big, but we're free to give more unique visions because we don't have shareholders saying, but, you know, what about the C-3PO sleeping bags? that we need to move. Yeah, I always hear from creators, whether they're independent or bigger creators, saying, oh, well, we made it for the fans, but when it comes to movies that are made for everybody, nobody ever asks, well, who are the fans that you're appealing to? I don't think a lot of them really seriously think, well, who are the fans that want to see this exactly? We made this beer for beer lovers. For beer lovers. Well, who did you ask? Well, three guys at this one bar we went to. It's like, oh, you like vodka. Here's a beer. We made it. It's, it's alcohol. So I think to that kind of philosophical discussion, I'll almost say it's like politics. Because on the one hand, if you talk about creatives, you could have artists that are making art solely for art's sake, and they could care less if anybody is interested. So that could just be me throwing paint on a canvas and saying this represents my inner struggle, and we'll put it in an art gallery. And, Jackson uh, Pollock kind of stuff. And there's no commercial merit to it at all. People may look at it and say, I don't get it. And we'll say that's art. And now you've had an artistic experience. That's like the extreme one end of the spectrum. On the extreme other is, and I have friends that do this where they will, they do comic book shows and they'll put a survey on Facebook and say, Hey people, uh, should I draw uh, Killmonger, uh, Groot, uh, or Scooby-Doo next, whatever you'll buy the most of, I'll make. And people will vote and say, we would like you to draw Killmonger. And the guy will say, cool, I will draw Killmonger, and you're buying it. So they're the opposite end of the spectrum where there's no uh, artistic merit. Uh, it's purely financial, and I don't fault either end of that spectrum. I'm just stating what I view as a fact. Um, I think for guys like Dave and I, uh, there's a little bit of both. We couldn't make something that was so commercially unusable that no one would ever buy it because we, we have to at least accept that we have to make things that will appeal to people enough to give us money because it ain't a sale if it don't get bought, okay? Um, but on the same token, I think that you have to shade a little more towards the artsy side and say, hey, I get that I want people to buy this stuff, 
but maybe I'm going to make what I want to buy. And I hope people come to me enough from my vision. So I'm not just going to be your, your, you know, uh, puppet and make, you know, draw me this. Okay. I'll draw you that, you know, and it'll be whatever's popular this year. Um, and I always laugh doing comic book shows because about every six months there's like whatever, whether it's Groot, Deadpool, Killmonger, you know, fill in the, the popular flavor for that cycle or quarter that the big corporate movies are punching out. Um, and you'll make money if you have that art. Um, and again, I don't begrudge those people. It's just, it's just the, the nature of that business, that business selling fan art it shows. But, um, you know, Dave could probably do a more commercially friendly product, but Dave's product is commercially viable and it's what Dave wants to make. So he's, he's giving a little bit of, to both sides of the spectrum. We're in the middle. I don't know how far we are to what side or if Dave and I are exactly the same. And obviously he should have his take on this since it's kind of a dual interview here. But, you know, I think you have to look at where you're at in the spectrum. Are you just making what everyone wants or do you have some kind of commercially viable vision but you're not just making stuff because people tell you to. You're saying, I have a vision. I hope you come to it because it's really cool. Come to me. Let the mountain come to Moses, they say, right? Isn't that what they say, Dave? Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and I think, too, I mean, for us, uh, when we started with Lovecraft PI uh, back in 2010, we wrote a script to just sell. We weren't looking at anything to, uh, you know, give it as much attention as we have now in the last eight years. So when we did that, you know, once we actually started writing the script, we fell in love with the universe, fell in love with the idea. And uh, my co-writer, uh, Fritz, and I just decided, well, we've got to expand upon this somehow. And how can we make this work? And so then, you know, just it started kind of growing from there. But ultimately, for us, that's where it came from, because we weren't successful script writers and, you know, wanting to get our stuff out there. But we're also fans. And we also understood the line, like what Jay's saying. It's, you want to be able to make something that you want to make and that you want to get out there for your own self, but also, you know, at least for me, I'm just speaking for myself as an artist, I want to have it both ways. I want to be able to enjoy it myself, but also have everybody else enjoy the same thing. That doesn't always happen, <laughs> as you gentlemen have seen with Ancient Evil 2. Uh, I enjoy it. <laughs> it's a bit of a mess, but, you know, it, it, the film is what it is. But with, the, with Lovecraft, it's one of those things where I... It's almost like it was calculated. It was one of those things where we had taken a lot of different ideas that we've grown grown with over the years, and we're like, "Well, what's this? We'll put this and that and everything else in it." But it also, but it also seems to work within the universe that it was created under. So, Jay's right. I mean, it, it could be commercial. It doesn't have to be either way. I feel the same way. The Lords of the Cosmos. I mean, Lords of the Cosmos to me, reading it. I instantly thought this would be the most amazing cartoon or animated show that I'd ever see. I mean, this thing would just, you know, take what we, what we, what we were all talking about, you know, Thundar and, you know, He-Man and all these other shows, but just take it to, you know, 10 levels up and go, here you go, guys. <laughs> you know, here's this insane animated show about Lords of the Cosmos. For me, personally, you know, having a fan base that already exists and working, navigating through that and not doing exactly what you know, HP Lovecraft had done, but also taking our own, you know, taking a little bit of what he did and also adding our same old, uh, adding our same, uh, adding our, I should say, adding our own um, mythos to it. It brings up interesting conversations. So I'll throw out an example because while uh, I've been listening, I've been thinking at the same time because I can walk and chew gum too. Probably the most bizarre property I can think of 
that went from commercial to nuthouse art was the anime series Neon Genesis Evangelion. Ah, yeah, I'm I'm a big fan which, of that one. Which I'm a fan, but I also despise it because the, the I think Hideki Anno is a crazy genius that is also kind of a jerk, and and if you you know when you watch that original uh, OVA from the '90s, I mean. I fell in love with it because there was like this great design of like giant robots fighting monsters. And it was really cool watching shell casings crush cars. And, you know, a train rolls out of a tunnel with a machine gun and the robot picks it up and like shoots the, the angel. And then, you know, people would warn me because I'd saw it around 2000. Like, you'll hate how it ends. <laughs> and I'm like, the end so of cool. heaven kill you. And, and then it's like, just, still photos of people on bicycles and watercolors and you're like, huh? <laughs> and, and, you know, I guess Hideki Anna was one of those guys. I don't think he cared whatever his weird, like he, he morphed into the guy like that. He had a huge commercial property and at the end he's an art house dude. And he just was like, here's my whacked out vision. Cause F you. Before we get to our shameless plugs of everything, um, we have yes. one more really important question. We like to ask everybody that we interview, um, Dave has answered this at least once, if not more. And that is, what is your opinion of hairless cats? Uh, well, I love cats. My cat is actually sitting on my lap right now, and she recently had a tooth cleaning, so part of her is shaved from her anesthesia, and she looks like she's wearing gloves today. So a very timely and ironic question uh, that you're asking me this. I think cats are beautiful if they have long hair, and I think they're beautiful if they have normal hair, and I think they're really cool and beautiful if they have no hair because I'm a cat person. I love cats. No. Um, I love cats, and I love goats, and I love pigs, and I like to sneak them in my art as much as possible. So um, I'm okay with hairless cats. Not a problem. Chalk one more up on, on my side of the board. I think I've got, what, like four, and you've got like 30, 38 yeah. or like 79 of like people that don't like hairless cats. Yeah, I don't, I don't hate hairless cats for existing. I just look at it and I'm like, what did we do to you guys? I always compare it to in Jurassic Park when they're talking about, was it wrong to bring dinosaurs back? Was this unethical? I'm like, well, we're unethical for creating these hairless cats. Like, you look at them, they just look cold constantly. They look unhappy. It's, this is science gone wrong we need to like go back a few steps and like think about the efficacy of um of what we've done to these creatures this used to be a tiger at one point what have we done with this thing and i just think their ancestors would be so cute be so mortified and i think they're just cute cuddly and you know need more love well and 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 obviously uh there's a need for small sweaters so uh, they do (laughs) fill that void that is true market opens so uh jason and dave where can we find your respective comics uh so that people can check them out for themselves uh, well, Lords of the Cosmos is easily found on Comixology, issue one and two. So look up Lords of the Cosmos on Comixology. Or if you'd like to get a physical copy and have me sign it and send you some extra crazy bonus uh, prints and, and swag, you can go to Etsy and go to my Etsy store, Lennox Art Emporium. And you can find them at the top of my page and easily buy issue one and two. Uh, and they all have variant covers, so that you can buy variants galore. Each one has four variant covers and sketch covers available on Etsy. So those are the two easiest ways to get my books. Or if you're lucky enough to find me at a convention, which you can go to my website, uh, jasonlennox.com, under the events tab, and I put all the shows and conventions I'll be at. So you can, if you're 
in rural PA. Hey, I'll be at Mount Aloysius on uh, Saturday, November 3rd, guys, between me, uh, between where I'm at and State College and you guys are at Pittsburgh. Um, hit me up at a show. And then I'll be at Scranton uh, uh, Comic-Con on November 11th. So there's where you can find my books or find me on Instagram uh, and Twitter at Lennox Artist or Facebook at Facebook.com slash Jason Lennox Illustrator. There you go. There's my plugs. <laughs> and uh, me, you can find uh, Lovecraft PI at uh, LovecraftPI.com. Um, our second uh, title, uh, Berserkers, uh, Soul Island. We're up to um, book six right now. You can find that and Lovecraft as well as other merchandise on darksidemedia.us. Um, I'll actually be appearing this Saturday, uh, one day only, uh, the 27th of October at the Jewelry City Steampunk Show in Attleboro, Massachusetts. And uh, that's I'm looking forward to that. That's my first time uh, going to be at the show this year. So, uh, And I definitely had a good turnout at the Steampunk Show back in May. So uh, that seems to be a new crowd that I'm enjoying hanging out with. And anything else, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and all that stuff at Lovecraft PI or Dark Side Media. Thank you, guys. Awesome. There you have it, B-Movie fans. Two comic series you should check out as soon as possible. Lovecraft PI by David Kahn and Lord of the Cosmos by, by Jason Lennox. Guys, it was awesome having you on the show. Thanks again for joining. Thanks for having me on, guys. This was a great time. If you have an independent film you're working on and would like to discuss, you can email us at bmoviebros at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com dash bmoviebros or follow us on Twitter at bmoviebros or my personal Twitter handle at bmoviepaul. You can find all our interviews as well as other bmovie content such as chats and movie reviews on our website bmoviebros.com. New content every week. If you have a movie you'd like us to review or any additional comments, feel free to leave us a message on either SoundCloud or iTunes. Just search for B-Movie Bros. This has been another B-Movie interview. I'm Paul. And I'm Corey saying until next time, friends, be brave, be bold, and be back for more. (laughs) 